the men and women. She thought of him, Joseph Mardle, the greatly sought after, and hers, with complacent affection, glancing up consciously at the branch of mistletoe which was entwined with the square glass lamp that hung over the front door. Joe had passionately kissed her under the mystic bough a week ago, for luck, on the first night of the successful peace, and luck had come, and seemingly remained with them. The booking was splendid, and they were rehearsing a more serious play that was to follow the Christmas jollity. Joe was so busy he didn't know where to turn for a spare five minutes. She did not complain, for if things went on like this, they would be able to move out of West Kensington, where you couldn't get a smart parlourmaid to stop with you. Gladys and her fingernails were a sore trial. She entered the dining room, and her eyes sought the sideboard. Ah. Joe had had some sense after all, and had remembered to refresh the inner man before leaving, as the violated tantalus betokened. He lay in bed late, he rarely breakfasted, and never with her. She rose at eight, on principle. She could not afford to keep actors' hours and ruin her complexion. She stood pensively by the small piece of Sheraton furniture, before she opened a drawer and took out of it what she had come to seek. Last night's oranges and apples beamed there on a pretty dish. Joe's cigarette boxes, flung about, needed tidying up. The presentation's silver bowl, given to Joe by his fellow actors on the occasion of his first marriage, shone in the centre with dignified luster. They had chosen something quite different to present him as a memento of his second venture. That was in her room. The bowl had a dwarf fern in it now but sometimes it ran over with punch, or was packed with roses. Another use was contemplated for it. If Joe and she were to have a baby, which sadly enough did not seem likely, the bowl would be used for the christening. Mrs. Martle took a pretty little check duster out of the drawer and went upstairs to her drawing room on the first floor. She carefully picked up an iridescent bead off the carpet, the spoil of the dress she had worn last night, and placed it on an ashtray. She then proceeded to rub up the several minute objects on her silver table, wishing heartily that she could afford to have them lacquered and thus dispense with her daily task. So occupied, she looked wholly pretty and half-domestic, a little soubrettish, like those neat-aproned maids who flutter about a stage scene and usher in and lay the tables for tragedy. There was no harm in Florence Mardell. She was a smart, novel-reading, sandown and ranelagh-going woman, easily dressed, easily amused, a little detached, perhaps, in her interests, and careless of the more serious issues of life, but quite willing to stimulate and assume social crazes as they came up. She played a good game of bridge. She glanced at the deep reviews as well as the Windsor and Pearsons, and improved her mind on the slightest opportunity. You could always get her for a subscription lecture of sorts, and she quite approved of female suffrage, without, however, actively concerning herself with its propaganda. She never fagged. She was always beautifully dressed in a severish, strapped, mock-manly style, and could wear successfully the very largest hats when they came in. She had been the widow of an officer, and had lived at Wimbledon in a big, dull house, standing in its own grounds. She had first set eyes on Joe Mardle, playing a strong Macheath in the Beggar's Opera, 
to the most ineffective Polly Peachum of Julia Fitzgerald. Miss Fitzgerald was his wife. Had she but known it, it might have made a difference, but very likely it would not have. Then and there she had fallen in love with the actor across the footlights, impulsively, violently, madly, and she had not rested, being of an inquisitive, pugnacious, predatory habit of mind, until she had persuaded a journalistic friend of hers and his to bring about an introduction. With her effective crown of real golden hair, waved and curled in extremis, her clean, fresh suburbanity, she had fascinated McKeith. He was known to be weak, volage, and full of moods. Florence was, on the contrary, strong and pertinacious. She had taken him in a mood and let her love profit by it. With fond remorselessness, she had driven him to drive his wife to divorce him. All this she had come.